Welcome to OECD Podcasts, where policy meets people. Thanks for joining us. I'm Clara Young, and I'm in the studio with Joaquim Oliveira Martins, who's the Deputy Director of the OECD's Center for Entrepreneurship, SMEs, Regions, and Cities. It's nice to see you here in the studio, Joaquim. Thank you. Populism is on the rise. We've been following the Gilets Jaunes protests, but France is not by any means the only OECD country where people are angry with the government and with the system at large. Brexit, it can be argued, is the outcome of populist rage. What these protesters share is where they come from. They're not from the cities. So, Joaquim, if we were looking at a map of the world here, what are the areas that fit what we call the geography of discontent? Well, it depends a bit on the countries. Huh? In, in some countries, it's really the rural areas. In other countries, are actually areas that are a bit between rural and urban. So it really depends. Is there something that these areas have in common that make it such that they aren't doing well? Oh, very often, there are areas that are, have been under a heavy, long uh, sort of economic restructuring. Imagine uh, old industrial regions, mining regions, but also can also be uh, regions which are a bit far away from cities. So they cannot uh, benefit uh, from this modern economy related to services, uh, to the benefits of interaction uh, agglomeration. Um, can also be sometimes that uh, you have difficulties in some regions to find uh, what we call in economics tradable sectors. That means basically sectors that can be uh, exported, for example, or exposed to competition to foreign countries. What kind of jobs do you mean by that that are exportable? Well, uh, you know, exportable sectors or tradable sectors can be uh, jobs in the agriculture in industry in uh, or in even some services right the problem is that developing the agriculture in these regions which are exposed to these economic problems is difficult the agricultural sector in most regions now is very small the industrial sector, as you know, in many regions has been delocalized abroad right and it's very difficult to actually to develop service industries because Services need density. Uh, you know, what makes a restaurant more productive is because there's a lot of consumers. Which is what these areas don't exactly. have, not enough people. What's the difference between cities and rich regions and the regions that aren't doing well? I think the most meaningful indicator, I would say, is perhaps productivity of labor, right? Because this is what really drives uh, everything. In a very large city, you can have, on average, labor productivity uh, ranging, for example, uh, 70, 80 US uh, dollars per employee or worker. And in some of the other regions, it's basically half. But what is important... In some of these regions, it's basically much lower or...? Yes, yes, half, mm. just half of it. And what is interesting is that these differences are not necessarily across countries, are within countries. The differences within countries sometimes are much, much larger than differences across countries. This populist anger that we are witnessing and that we're seeing in the press, what's it a reaction to? Is it global trade that's taking away jobs? Is it lower wages? Well, I think I must uh, I must say that sometimes economists uh, were, um, uh, how, how, how could I put it? Uh, when they analyzed the impacts of, for example, globalization, exposure to international competition, of course, this is good for economies. Uh, uh, development is about openness, trade, etc. But sometimes we neglected the fact that these impacts of globalization and trend are very asymmetric. Think about cities, for example. Most of the people in cities work in service industries, right? Uh, this, typically, these services are not in direct competition with, for example, low-wage countries. 
But they, they are in direct competition with low-wage countries. They are not. They, they are, are not. not. Okay. They are not in direct competition to uh, low-wage countries. But, for example, people that are still working in sort of uh, less developed regions, for example, well, these people, when they lose the job, uh, because in industries are, for example, delocalized, they have much greater difficulty to find other jobs, right? And because the things we said just before, they cannot move to the service sector. So uh, the perception about these shocks is much stronger in some regions than others. There is one thing that's quite interesting about the relationship between areas and global trade is that they have ridden out economic shocks better than those that haven't. So being connected to the global market is in fact a good thing, isn't it? Absolutely. We have been analyzing um, the main drivers in some sense of what we could call a regional conversions. What makes that uh, lagging region becomes closer to the frontier of, uh, of productivity? There are mainly two things. One thing actually is, is being close to cities. The regions which are close to cities in some sense benefit from this, this vibrancy of, of cities. But the second thing, the second driver is actually the presence of these exportable sectors, these tradable sectors. That's clearly a very strong factor. Now, the problem is that sometimes it's very difficult to retain these tradable sectors. There is something that's also very interesting is tradable services that we're seeing more because of the Internet. So an accountant in a small town could compete and offer services through the Internet and work on a, on a global scale. That's a very interesting and important development. Of course, some services are, are already, in some sense, tradable. Think, for example, about uh, call centers, right? Sometimes you call a call center and uh, you have a person in the other side of the ocean, right? Exactly. But uh, also financial uh, you know, services, even tourism is a form of making services in a country tradable, in some sense. But, uh, you know, the forms of globalization are evolving. For example, the technology could transform a bit this production of services at distance. For example, all the technologies with, which allow for v virtual presence, for example, for uh, what we call tele migration, automatic translation, all these technologies have actually the potential to to transform the services, increase in some sense the tradability of services. This could have a very strong impact indeed across regions. What are uh, some other technologies um, specifically that could be an answer to these regions that have been left behind? Well, in the past, you know, uh, industries uh, tended to be concentrated in clusters or needed to be close to cities, but more and more these technologies allow for a very distributed system of production. Think about 3D printing, for example. You don't need to have a very big uh, production unit need to actually to, to use this uh, 3D printing uh, technology. The only thing is that you need, of course, to have electricity, which you know is a bit everywhere, although some countries are still <laughs> lacking of it. But of course, you also need access to very uh, sort of fast internet. And this is, I, th I would say, is one of the biggest challenges in terms of regional development, is make sure that there is no digital divide within our countries. It's interesting that you bring up the word clusters because there is a study that talked about, for example, food processing industry clusters in rural France where you have industry there, but also um, education and training so that you have a workforce that can work in this industry there. Could you talk a bit more about that, cluster strategies? That has been a, a policy that has worked uh, well in many cases. Having said that, these clusters tend to be, as you described, sectoral. So you said, for example, this example of the agro-food or in the... Or or in the manufacturing uh, sector, for example, the automotive cluster, for example. Some countries take the example of, of Slovakia. Slovakia, the, you know, the miracle of productivity and growth in Slovakia is driven by the automotive cluster. The issue is that more and more 
people in terms of evidence and studies analysis have been discovering that actually it's it's not really the the sectoral interactions which are the most important at the end in a modern economy. It's actually the hybridation of sectors, is the interaction across very different types of activities. So actually, it's more like a, a diversified cluster that really makes the difference. What do so, you mean by hybridization? Could you? Explain that. Well, I just said the most most of the innovation of our times results from the interaction uh, across different technologies, not a single technology, but the interaction of different technologies. For example, uh, uh, and combining uh, ICT uh, uh, ICT with uh, else. Uh, Else technologies, for example, for providing better uh, health care. Oh, okay, so ICT and health. Okay, so telehealth. Uh, for mm-hmm. example, for example. Services. But so what I'm saying is that these clusters, uh, you know, probably the biggest impact is when they are diversified. And then uh, where you find this diversification of clusters? Well, it's actually in cities. There's people who uh, don't want to move to find jobs. I think economists have long just assumed people would move where the jobs are, and they don't. Often, economists have assumed, well, not only economists, but let's say policymakers have assumed that people can move following jobs. The problem is that this labor mobility across the OECD has been decreasing. That's a very surprising fact. And even in countries like the U.S., that was a country really characterized by a very strong mobility, these flows of people uh, have been decreasing. So why so? Uh, there are several reasons. For example, uh, the financial crisis brought a lot of issues related to what we call negative assets. So people, for example, were in a given region, they, they were the owners of the house, and they have difficulty selling the house. So this makes the mobility difficult. So but they're also, kind of stuck. Exactly, exactly. They're stuck with these assets. But also, you see that this mobility to cities sometimes is made difficult because the costs of living in cities are becoming higher and higher. Absolutely. Think about the cost of housing, for example. So then my other question would be, if people are staying put, but the jobs are going elsewhere because they're in industries that are not doing well, what about the simple strategy of helping people out with increased welfare benefits and subsidies? Well, that doesn't work. I'm not saying we should not have some form of, uh, of compensation, of help, of some sort of, uh, you know, even in terms of social, social situations, but uh, creating dependency is not a very good idea. It's not the way to go. It's not a very good idea, no. Another worry that people have is their vulnerability to robots and automation of their work. And uh, there are some areas of countries that are more vulnerable than others. Now, why is that? That's also a very interesting sort of uh, point. Uh, on average, on, um, on OECD countries, uh, what we call the jobs exposed to high risk of automation, what that means, means that actually the tasks that compose the job can be uh, at uh, 75% of these tasks can be replaced by automats, robots, uh, you know, computers, etc. So this is what we call high risk of um, automation. On average, on OECD countries, we computed uh, that around 14-15% of the jobs could be exposed to this high risk of automation. But at the regional level, this ratio of high risk of automation could reach 40%. For example, in some regions, you have almost like half, half of the jobs that could go uh, uh, and be replaced by, by machines, robots, etc. So I'm not saying this is, this is bad because basically why we are doing uh, automation is because enterprises can, of course, become much more productive, right? Much more profitable, etc. But we need to think about strategies, how to accompany these movements. Are national governments well equipped to uh, deal with these kinds of problems that are regional? No, not really. 
you need really a very strong partnership across different levels of government. National governments can do sectoral policies, can do policies which are uniform, national-wide. These policies address some very important problems. You know, some, some policies need to be defined at that scale. But most of the phenomena that we are being uh, you know, talking about are really local ones. Uh, this kind of huge diversity of situations across, for example, remote rural regions require very specific, tailored type of solutions. You cannot do that by a policy uh, defined from the center. So you need this uh, articulation, this uh, cooperation, this uh, coordination, coherence, if you want, about policies that are decided by central governments, state or regional level governments and municipalities. This is what we call, you know, in the, kind of, in the OECD, the need for investing in the governance system. I think my last question is this. For areas that are having difficulty, have there been initiatives or projects that are really working well that you could point to as this is an idea that you could think of? Well, I came from Portugal. I have an example of a little region uh, which is really inner. In Portugal, we have this, this problem of, of development between the coast and the inner parts of the country. So the inner parts of the country are really, really much more underdeveloped than the coasts. And there is a little city in the middle of the mountains. Uh, they actually were very well known as producing cherries. And they, they are now turning around and they are creating a coding academy there. A coding academy? A coding academy. Can you imagine that? The mayor was actually an extremely entrepreneurial sort of a person that uh, took advantage, for example, that the Portugal Telecom, the big uh, sort of uh, Portuguese telecom company, had a server, big server, not very far from uh, the city. So they could have access to fast uh, internet. And then they used a lot of municipal funds of or, uh, or uh, EU uh, structural funds, you know, the, this uh, the EU, EU, funds, the EU cohesion policy to create actually the conditions to develop a coding uh, academy. The kids in the primary school in that region spend like uh, four hours per week doing coding courses, for example. So this is a very interesting example. Sometimes, you know, these things happen. Now, it requires a lot of uh, leadership, a lot of sort of a common vision, a lot of what we call uh, this governance, sort of the systems working. So for... So, an idea like that, of course, requires not only the public sector, uh, the local schools, and of course the private sector do this kind of idea. But sometimes uh, this, this type of initiatives work. But they are always very specific. One thing that is going to work in one place probably won't work in another place. Each region would require to have really this kind of development strategy. It's to find out what really they are good at. It's not what they need but what they can offer in some sense. But if you are a cherry-producing region, you might think about coding. So thanks for speaking with us, Joaquin. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And thanks for listening to OECD Podcasts. I'm Clara Young. To find out more about what we've been talking about, read the OECD's Regional Outlook 2019. To listen to other OECD podcasts, find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and soundcloud.com slash OECD.